Amen. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for the sermon this morning. Today, we are going to be together in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. A very and justly famous passage from Paul, well-known and beloved to many of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is God's holy word for us, his people this morning. God's word says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed in your wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower, we plead, the preaching of your word, that it might accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. By the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit, help us to receive your word with faith and with eagerness to obey. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, this morning, guys, we continue. In the month of October, we continue our series on the five solas of the Reformation. What are we doing in this series? We are reminding ourselves and we are celebrating the recovery of biblical Christianity by the Reformers in the 16th century. And the dividing line between that recovery of biblical, faithful, historic, orthodox Christianity and any aberrant version of Christianity, the dividing line between them is summarized historically for us in these five solas. Why are you Protestant? We should be Protestants of conviction, not Protestants out of comfort or out of convenience, but out of conviction, biblical conviction that what the Reformers recovered in the 16th century by the mercy of God in his good and kind providence for his church was nothing less than biblical Christianity. It's the dividing line. 
Last week we began with the foundational sola, sola scriptura, scripture alone. All of these, if you, didn't, if you didn't know or didn't hear from last week or don't remember, all these five solas, why am I using Latin? Because that's, they were originally in Latin. And we translate them into English. So sola, the Latin for alone. And we began last week with sola scriptura, scripture alone. What is the only inspired, God-breathed source of original, infallible, divine revelation that God has given to the church to be the rule of our faith. Scripture alone, not Scripture plus anything else like tradition. Scripture alone. What rule of faith is primary and supreme above all others as the highest, ultimate, final authority for the church? Scripture alone, not Scripture plus clerics, councils, creeds, or any consensus of men as good and vital and precious and necessary as all those things are. We need clerics, religious leaders, people to fill the offices of the church, pastors, elders, theologians, teachers. We need them. Councils. We need councils to get together where Christians compile their biblical wisdom and insight and craft creeds like the one we confess, the Apostles' Creed. And we need confessions of faith like the Westminster Confession that we follow as Presbyterians. And we need to learn from the wisdom of consensus and the wisdom of history. And tradition's not a dirty word to a Protestant. Tradition's a good word. It's a holy word. It's a biblical word. But none of those things, clerics, councils, confessions, creeds, consensus, none of that's God-breathed. None of that's inspired by God. None of that is, a, is the source of original divine revelation. The only divine revelation in those sources better be repetitions and explanations of what's in the Bible. Or we don't receive them or accept them or believe them. They do not have authority on par with Scripture. Nothing can compete with or conflict with Scripture. Scripture alone is our highest Authority, Not our only authority, but our highest one. And not the only authority that gets things right sometimes, but the only one that gets things right every time. Infallibly. No man or bishop or church or council or anything that's not inspired by God can claim to be infallible. There's nothing in this world, Christian, you can trust to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth 100% of the time. Only one thing can do that. Lots of things can tell you a lot of the truth a lot of the time. It can be very reliable and dependable. But nothing is infallible but what comes out of the mouth of God. And that's why we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. Because he speaks with that infallible, divine, ultimate authority and truth. And it's reliable and it's rock solid and you can base your eternity on it. What comes out of God's mouth. Scripture alone is like that. Nothing else is like that. What amount of sources and authorities are necessary and sufficient 
to give the church all the truth and all the instruction required to have the whole gospel or to be saved and to believe and do all that God demands in the Christian life. How many sources of information do you need for all that stuff? Just one, Scripture alone. And everything else is a supplement to that, an explanation of that, an elaboration of that. But none of that extra stuff is God-breathed. It can be good, holy, healthy, necessary, vital, glorious, reliable, but it's not God-breathed. Scripture is enough to tell you how to be saved. Scripture is enough to tell you all the information and all the instruction you need to know God, to know Christ, to know the gospel, to be saved, and to live a godly life. All the content, all the material, all you need is in Scripture. Now, we need other things to help us interpret and explain and understand, but none of that extra stuff, if I haven't said it enough, none of that extra stuff is God-breathed, and none of it has divine authority. Only Scripture does that. That's last week. Go back and listen to that. These resources are available to share with your friends, with your neighbors, and with yourself to know and learn what this stuff is because this is vital. Scripture alone. This morning, standing on the firm foundation of God's only inspired, infallible, supreme, and sufficient word, Scripture, we move on today to the second sola of the Reformation. Sola gratia. Sola gratia, or some people say sola gratia. just depends on how you learned to pronounce Latin. Both are fine. Latin's a dead language. Pronounce it how you want. <laughs> I kind of like gratia, but we'll go with gratia because it's what most of us are used to. Sola gratia. That's the Italian way of saying it. We're not Italian, but okay. Sola gratia. That's fine. Just as we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to teach us the faith, get this, just as we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to teach us the faith, we also believe in the sufficiency of grace to accomplish our salvation. And the word that is key is sufficient. You see, almost every Christian of every stripe and type believes in the necessity of grace. You can't be saved apart from the grace of God. You need the grace of God to be saved. No salvation without it. Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, as well as today, teaches that truth. And they're right You need grace to be saved. Rome's never taught this kind of crass, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's all works and merit and no grace, and you don't need God to be saved. That's never been what they teach. Sometimes they get misrepresented. No, they believe firmly, strongly, historically, biblically, in the absolute necessity of grace. Can't be saved without it. But that's not the issue. The issue in the Reformation and the issue in the Scriptures and the issue for us this morning is, is grace sufficient or does grace need help? Does grace need some help to save or can grace save you 
top to bottom, inside and out, all the way down from first to last. That's the issue. That's where the alone or the only comes in. The sola says grace is sufficient. Others say grace plus. We say grace alone is sufficient to save us. And that means God alone is able and sufficient to save us. Almost everybody agrees in the necessity, but what about the sufficiency? At the end of the day, sola gratia just simply means, just simply means that we contribute nothing to our own salvation. Grace alone is enough to do it all. One of my old pastors, old Baptist church, used to say it like this back home in North Carolina. He used to say, the only thing we bring to the table in salvation is the need for it. I like that. Sola gratia. Grace alone In our passage this morning, this wonderful passage of Scripture, Paul forcefully and fully proclaims the sufficiency of grace. And I want us to see this sufficiency under three aspects of it in the text. I want us to see, one, the fountain of grace. Two, the foundation of grace. And then third, the future of grace. And as we consider these three aspects today, we're going to see that God's grace alone accomplishes our whole salvation from first to last. So let's begin with the fountain of grace. A little context. In our passage, Paul is bursting with energy as he goes into detail about the salvation that God has accomplished for his people. Paul opened the letter to the Ephesians with you know, a couple of verses, like verses 1, 2, 3, with a, a little salutation, a greeting. But then from verses 3 to 14, Paul is out of his mind with excitement. He just can't find where to stop the sentence. Now, in your English Bible, there's a, it's more than one sentence. In Greek, verses 3 to 14, which is almost two columns in my double-column Bible, two full columns almost, in Greek, it's one long sentence. English teachers would just give him an F on this. Come on, all these participles and commas, it's just, come on. Paul, just take a breath, brother. He can't. He's too excited about the grace that he's describing, the God of all grace that he's describing in the opening of this letter. Verses 3 to 14 are all one long sentence in Greek. But finally, in verse 15, he, he stops, he takes a breath. And as he explains how he rejoices, verse 15, he explains how he rejoices in his prayers for the salvation and spiritual flourishing of the Ephesian Christians, a church that he planted. And as he moves then into chapter 2, Paul compares the Ephesians before their salvation with their condition after salvation. 
Chapter 2 starts with where they were, and it ends with where they are now. From before they were saved to where they've come since being saved. And our passage this morning comes right in between those two spiritual conditions. Our passage is where it is to explain how the Ephesians moved from before they were saved to after they were saved. That's what 4 to 10 is for. That's what it's there to do. Paul's clear and unambiguous explanation for how the Ephesians went from before they were saved to being saved is that they, just like you and me, have been saved entirely by the grace of God alone. And the first aspect of this all-sufficient grace that Paul highlights is its source, the fountain of grace. So I want us to look at the fountain of grace, and I want us to think about this source, and then in each of these points, I want to highlight the sufficiency, the sufficiency of grace. So first, let's look at the fountain. Verses 4 and 5 in Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice this fountain of grace, Christian. Notice where it says that God, being rich in mercy made us alive. God being rich in mercy with this love that he has for us made us alive. Just hear that language of Paul today and notice the bottomless mercy of God being rich in mercy. There's a lot of wealthy people in the world. Millionaires, billionaires. It's just this Disgusting how much money some people have. My goodness, they can afford to take just day trips to the moon. (laughs) It's unbelievable how much money they have, right? They're so rich. They have so much stuff, so many employees, so many companies and businesses and money. And just, it's just, wow. They're rich in wealth, rich in money. God has a treasury of mercy for you. That is bottomless. That has no ceiling and no bottom. It can't be contained. It's boundless. He is rich. He is explosive, profuse, lavish in how much mercy he has. He's rich in it. He's rich in it. He's the wealthiest merchant of mercy you'll ever find with an infinite store, so that no matter how many times you come with your sin and and extract another debit from mercy and another sin that needs another debit from mercy, and no matter how many times you swipe that card of sin that needs more and more mercy out of that account to cover your debt, forgive us our debts, right? No matter how many times you swipe that card, the mercy's always there. You never have to worry that it's going to run dry. You never have to be alarmed that maybe I've sinned one too many times. His mercy is boundless. 
and his mercy is rich. And since it's mercy, it's something that a sinner needs. Not just generosity and goodness. You can be good to a person who's not done anything wrong. But someone who's in need needs mercy. Someone who doesn't deserve needs compassion and mercy. Your God is rich in mercy. And because he's so rich in mercy, it says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Can you fathom a greater, more infinite, more pure and perfect love than the love of your heavenly Father? The love of God that moves heaven and earth to make us his own. No, no length or depth of sinning is too great an obstacle for the love of God to overcome. He's rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us. And that's the fountain. The boundless, merciful, loving heart of God is where your grace comes from, Christian. That's its source. It's infinite spring welling up in the heart of a heavenly father. Remember Romans 5.20? Where sin abounded... Grace abounded all the more. It is abounding and boundless. A bottomless mercy and a boundless love. And it's a free and sovereign love. Remember our Old Testament reading earlier? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. It said, Israel, listen. Do not think that God set his love upon you and chose you because you're so great. Because you somehow deserve it. Because you have an entitle, a, a title to it or a right to it. It's not because you were a great nation or a wonderful people that God loved you and chose you. And then it says, it's not because you're great that God loved you and chose you. It's just because he loved you. Just because he loves you. That's why he loves you. You see, God's love for us is not like our love for other people and stuff. Because we see things that are lovely to us. They have their own loveliness, and so our heart is attracted to them. Because we see good in that thing that we love, and, we, and our heart goes out to it. It's like that object or that person pulls the love out of you. But we can't pull the love out of God. We have no loveliness in our sin. So the love has to come from God himself. He initiates his love for you. You don't just look so beautiful and attractive to him. No, in spite of sin, in his great love and mercy, he finds unlovely sinners and he makes them lovely in his grace and in his mercy. That's what he does. It is bottomless and it is boundless and it is free and sovereign. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 1. He said, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the glory of God's grace, that it is free, infinite, boundless, and sovereign. And it comes from him. And we don't have any goodness or merit or loveliness that sort of twists his arm and makes him love us. It's absolutely free. That's the source. That's the fountain. And notice that it is sufficient. You don't need anything else. It says, but God. But 
God. Nevertheless, God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. We were dead in sin. That's what verses 1 through 3 are all about. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Children of disobedience. But in spite of that, God and God alone, without your help or permission, was able to overcome your deadness and sin and make you alive with Christ. Christian, it's by grace that you've been saved. And that grace flows freely from a fountain that cannot fail, the boundless heart of an infinite and loving God. The only thing we bring to the table in salvation is the need for it, and he brings everything to supply that need. Paul indicates in our text not only the fountain but also now the foundation of grace. The foundation is Jesus Christ. As he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, through Christ we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace. Grace is a rock-solid foundation under our feet. It enables us to stand. And through Christ and Christ alone, we have access to that foundation to stand on this grace. Through Christ and by faith, we are standing firm in grace. The foundation of grace is Jesus Christ alone in his perfect person and his finished work for you. The only foundation of grace, Christ and what he's accomplished. And all grace, Christian, all grace is accessed by being united to this Jesus by faith. We'll talk more about faith alone next time. But by faith, we get into Christ. Through him, we have access into this grace that we stand on. Paul says this in verses 5 and 6 of our text. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. How? Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. You see, it's in union with him that we tap into this grace. The grace flows from the heart of God, and it comes to us in the person and work of Christ. And by faith, you get into Christ and drink from the fountain. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the fountain but through the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished for us in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, seated at God's right hand, interceding for you even now. That's the foundation of our grace. That's the only place our feet can stand firm. We can't go to God and say, can I have a drink from the fountain of grace, Lord? I've tried so hard to be a good person. Oh, I've turned over a new leaf so many times and I've made such good progress. Oh, I've been so much better than this other filthy sinner over here. 
Oh, I look great compared to those people over there. Aren't I good enough, Lord? Can't I just have a sip of the grace? Where are you standing today? Where is your standing with God? What are you hoping in, trusting in to get to God, to be right with God, to have God's love and favor? Where are you standing? What are you hoping in? Where are your feet planted? You planted in grace alone, or you're trying to add some own, some goodness and holiness and godliness and a little bit of merit of your own. Jesus Christ is the only foundation. We are united to him, as it says, made alive with Christ. Christ was crucified for, for our sin and raised from the dead and exalted and seated with the Father. And it's only by faith that we plug into what that accomplished for us. Only by faith we plug into, access the redemption that his death and resurrection and exaltation purchased for us, guarantees for us. We stand upon his name and his person and work, not our own. Not our name, not our intentions, not our New Year's resolutions, not our how we measure up to other people that we think we're better than. No, we stand in Christ. For only in Christ do we have a foundation of grace that's strong enough to hold, that will not fall out from under us. And now again, I said, notice the sufficiency of the fountain. God doesn't need us to give us the grace that saves us. He can make us alive all by himself, by grace alone. Now notice the sufficiency of Christ. This is verses 8 and ten, eight to 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. How many times does Paul have to say it in one passage? By grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift or the grace of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see that? The grace, the salvation, the faith, all of it. It's not your own doing. And it's not a result of your good works. It's only by grace. And it's only a gift of God. It's not anything that has to do with anything we can contribute or claim about ourselves so that no one can boast, I'm in heaven because of something I did. Oh, yes, I'm right with God because of me. Now, no true Christian talks like that, but sometimes our theology implies that we should talk like that when we start hoping in and being proud of our own selves. Instead of boasting only in Christ, only in grace, only in mercy, only in the cross, that's the only place we can stand. And that's a place that's sufficient. You can stand there and not have to worry, do I need to contribute something else? You don't. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's gospel good news. Grace alone from the heart of God alone, purchased in Christ alone, available in Him by faith alone. That's sufficient. We don't need to bring or add anything else. Finally this morning, we've seen the fountain of grace. We have seen the foundation of grace, and now we see the future of grace. Just one verse that we skipped in the middle. Verse 7. He just said in verse 6, He 
or at the end of verse 5, we're saved by grace. He just said in verse 6 that we were raised up with Christ and we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? What's the end goal? What's God's final purpose in this grace alone salvation? Look at verse 7. So that, so that introduces the purpose, the reason. Here's the reason. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What an astonishing purpose God has for saving us by grace, for giving us Christ who purchased our grace and our salvation. What an amazing purpose. What is the purpose of God in loving you, in being so merciful to you, in giving you such a Jesus to be such a Savior? Verse 7 says, it's so he can keep on lavishing you with his grace forever. God just wants to spend eternity being your portion He just wants to spend eternity being your treasure. He just wants to spend eternity showing you that there's more riches and there's more grace and there's more of me to satisfy you forever. That's what he wants. He wants to exalt the glory of his own self as a perfect savior by saving you perfectly. The only way he can get the glory for being a perfect savior is if he saves you perfectly. And that's what his purpose is. You get all the grace and joy, he gets all the glory, and that's the best of all possible worlds. God has figured out a way to where he gets all glory and we get all the, all the grace. He just wants to show you how kind he is forever, to dazzle you with his kindness, to show you how immeasurable is his rich Sufficient grace. Do you need anything else, Christian? What else do you need? Let us not offend a gracious God today by saying, Yes, Lord, but what about this extra stuff that I contribute and that I bring? Let us not despise His grace or bring such dishonor upon His all-sufficient grace and mercy for us. This should melt your heart, Christian. This should make us humble. This should make us tender. This should make us hate sin. This should make us love grace. This should make us see the beauty of Jesus. This should make us see what a glorious God we have. It is the eternal joy of God to share his loving kindness with you forever. Christian, do you see the all-sufficiency of grace in this text? Do you see it? Can you point people to the passage and say, look... Here is why we believe in the sufficiency of grace. Is your heart captured today by the boundless love of your God? Why would you not drink to your heart's content from this fountain of grace today? Why would you hesitate to come and drink from the water of life freely? Why pursue any other future but the future of this grace with this God? This is why we believe in sola gratia. Because we know that God accomplishes our whole salvation and he does so for his own glory and for our eternal good by grace alone. Sola gratia.
Let's pray. Father, we worship you today and we love you today because of the boundless and bottomless love you have for us. We see the sufficiency of your grace and we thank you and worship you for it. Oh, let it humble us. Oh, let it make us patient through our trials. Oh, may it make us content in our suffering. Oh, may it make us long for the future of grace that's out there for us. Oh, may it make us trust in you and treasure you. May it make us see the glory of Christ as an all-sufficient Savior. Let, the, let this gospel of grace alone just have its way with our hearts and with our minds and let it change us to be more and more thankful, humble, and obedient in our lives. And we'll give you all the glory for this. Never let us forget. Never let us stand anywhere else. Never let us drink from any other fountain or look for any other foundation or long for any other future but the one that you have for us in Christ by grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.